Hello, believers, devotees, and tenacious writers of all genres. I'm Brooke Warner, and I am here with my week in and week out co-conspirator in all things literary. Hi, Grant. Hello. <laughs> we are all of a sudden into the holidays um, and somehow past Hanukkah already. I, I guess it came early this year. Um, and, you know, I'm not generally a fan of the month of December. I, I find it really stressful. Um, I think it's just there's a lot of pressure. It's always too busy. Then there are those two weeks off from school for those of us who have kids. But, you know, no matter the pressures, there's also simultaneously no denying the magic of the holiday season. And for me, that conjures up images of wintry wonderlands, even though I'm from Southern California, so I never really had them. Uh, but, you know, it's it's about how we're inspired by the stories and songs and traditions of this time of year and how we can be transported by the beauty of the holiday season, the lights and the decoration and the merriment. Uh, but the reason I'm getting into all of this today, Grant, I mean, obviously, is because it's still December. Uh, but I also wanted to talk about this idea, this connection, you know, of like when you know that there's magic, when you know you're in the zone. Um, and we're going to be talking to Alka Joshi today, who's the author of The Henna Artist. And what strikes me about her is this really deep conviction that she had a story to tell. And I am just interested in this idea because I talk to writers all the time, you know, who have this deep, deep sense of confidence and knowing and then they can kind of get derailed <laughs> in mm -hmm. their process sometimes. Um, and so I, I guess I want to circle around that, you know, this this deep knowing that authors have that theirs is a story that is going to connect and have an impact. And, and you know, starting from that seed of inspiration before maybe the industry starts to wear you down a bit. It's an interesting process, isn't it? Um, how a story starts with that feeling of confidence, which I think is at the heart of most or all good stories. Um, and then the journey of trying to keep that confidence, I think, because, you know, that confidence is so important because most really good stories, you know, they grip us with what's different about them, which means that they're, you know, the author is taking risks. And when an author takes a risk, they risk being misunderstood or dismissed or diminished somehow, uh, especially when it comes to publishing, because as we've discovered so often on the show, publishing can be a very conservative business that looks for what's the same and what has been done before instead of what's new. Uh, you know, agents and editors, essentially, they want to sell books, which means they want to package things neatly and kind of smooth the edges of what might make a work more interesting and unique, at least from the author's point of view. And Brooke, you know what? I was listening just last night, actually, to Kiese Lehman, who we've had on this show. And he was on Ezra Klein's podcast and talking about, well, his subject was revision. But he, he said that when he sits down to write, he essentially tries to change the genre he's writing in in some way. And, and that means that he's risking failure with everything he writes, he said. And it's only his confidence in his story that guides him. And that's a confidence that comes from being in service to the story, you know, writing it with integrity and believing that integrity is what will make the story be meaningful to others in the end. And so that was really inspiring as well. Mm, yeah, gosh, I love KSA. And, um, and yeah, and I've, I've long been curious about this inner knowing, because most writers, I think, do have it when they start out, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's conviction. And it's probably the thing that 
drives people to the page. And then it can be confusing and difficult because you can have that deep conviction and then get feedback from the industry, as we're saying. And then that's the thing that causes you to doubt yourself. And then you have to sit there and wonder, you know, like, well, should I make these changes? Or if I stick to my guns, what are the consequences of that? You know, and even as we discuss this topic today, I find myself of two minds about it because I've been the editor <laughs> who's supported authors to rethink their stories or their structures or to make their work in my opinion, better, you know, maybe it's to tighten it, maybe it's to overhaul it. And, and then I've also had the experience many times of suggesting to authors that they do something or try something, only come to find out that the exact thing that I'm suggesting was their original story or their original direction or structure. And then they were told by another editor to change it. And so I know how frustrating this level of subjectivity is for authors. And I've seen it time and again, which is this push and pull between staying true to what you want to do and then giving up sometimes a little, sometimes a lot for another person's vision. So what's your advice, Grant, for writers who find themselves in a place of getting feedback that's maybe at odds with what they believe to be the best vision for their story? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Um, at least for me, I'm actually going through it now in a way, uh, both with the nonfiction book that I sold and with the novel I'm trying to publish and working with an agent on. And I want to listen to feedback because I value the smart, experienced people I'm working with. And I can point to many times when an editor or agent has improved my work. Um, but at the same time, sometimes we're working at cross purposes because, uh, you know, like what I said about Kiese. I'm working in service to my vision of the book, and they're often more in service to the vision of a product and making sure it sells. And I understand that, and I respect the latter, but, you know, sometimes I feel like that might impinge on my vision. So it's it's really, a I don't know, it's a, it's a tough thing to navigate. And and in the podcast with Kese, he talked about how, he said this uh, thing that really struck me. He said, how we write is how we live. And I think it's really interesting to think about this through that lens because it's really an existential question. We all have to, you know, receive feedback and make compromises in life in general, but we also have to figure out how to stay true to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the, the, the short answer to your question is, is a lifetime journey. And uh, oftentimes it's personal, a judgment call, an experiment. So it's it's just something you have to kind of feel your way through. I've definitely worried at times that have been too resistant to feedback and possibly defensive. Um, but at the same time, I can walk away thinking, oh, I was too weak and I just caved in. So totally. And, and you know, another angle on this whole topic is perseverance. Um, you know, it's like to be persistent and also on the same note to be patient. I mean, there's all these ways that you have to be. And I, I so I love that take from Kiese. It's like, it's how you are in the world, because this is also how you are in relationships. And I've heard Alka's story, um, because we were together in Santa Fe. And so I listened to her tell her whole publishing journey on this panel. And it was just fascinating, because, you know, she had these moments where her agent would just ignore her where she was being, you know, not not outwardly hostile or anything, but just this sort of feeling of being dismissed or forgotten about um, and I know for me, like when that happens, I can get a little prickly, <laughs> you know, where I get this impression that I'm being strung along and I don't like it. Um, and, and so then how you show up, of course, is so important. And especially for writers when they're debut and they don't have the relationships, you know, and so you're trying to walk that line of being this generous, patient person and at the same time trying to figure out how much you can be a squeaky wheel without really alienating someone. Someone. Um, so it's just very nuanced territory. Um, and, and, you know, 
probably every writer is going to react different in line with their personality. But it got me thinking about rejection, Grant. I know you're a student of rejection, given that you have a book project on this topic. So what are your thoughts about the connection between conviction and rejection? Funny you mentioned the rejection book because it's actually been rejected. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. I, I haven't. I, it's not entirely rejected, I haven't, but I haven't found an agent interested in it. And it's been on uh, the back burner for a while. Strangely enough, though, you know, the writers and the potential readers I talked to about it, they were always very, I think, genuinely interested in it. So I do think there's a market for it, but um, I'm not sure. I'm engaging whether I have the perseverance to return to it and take it to the next level. But um, yeah, to address your question, I think rejection is at the center of this. You know, we've, we've, we so often hear these heroic tales of creators, you know, sticking to their visions through rejection and ostracization and all sorts of trials and tribulations. But we usually hear those tales on the other side of things, you know, after an artist is revered and celebrated and all that rejection seems, you know, worth it. And, and we forget all those moments of kind of crippling doubt that go along with it. So, you know, I have to wonder how many rejected artists are out there who didn't make it. And I personally don't think the cream always rises to the top. I think there's a lot of great work out there waiting to be discovered or that it, it's not discovered. I always say that to be an author is to be rejected. So you have to develop a strategy and a mindset to get through rejection, you know, to kind of fortify your conviction. And I do think that rejection can offer some really positive inflection points. You know, it is a moment to reckon with uh, what might be wrong or holding your work back and to seek feedback and to change your vision or even just to refine your story a bit. And conversely, it offers moments to also dig in deeper and decide to double down on your commitment. And, you know, in the end, I think you have to try to find that deeper belonging. I think of Brene Brown. Uh, she talks about deeper belonging, you know, belonging to something that goes beyond the opinions of others or the conventions of society. And, you know, to be, like Kiese said, to be in service to your story and do what's right for it, you know. And I, just since I met, mentioned Kiese, I wanted to say one more thing about him. He actually bought back the rights to two of his published books so that he could revise them. And and one of the reasons he did so was because he said that a, that a white editor he had 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 edited out what he called the Mississippi blues of his voice. Hmm. So I, th I thought that was really interesting that he took that financial risk in order to serve his story and write it with the integrity he wanted to. Yeah. Uh, and that just makes me think that the takeaway is that maybe there's no one right way to be in relationship with the creative process. Um, you know, I do believe that every single idea and storyline can benefit and does from editorial input and collaboration. And there are authors who don't let other people into their process at all. And I think their work suffers for it. Um, you know, and then on the other hand, of course, there are people out there who are going to try to change your ideas for the wrong reason. So as a writer, it's just important to sort out those boundaries for yourself. You know, how much are you willing uh, and able to be pushed or challenged? And where will you draw the line on creative control? Because it does take a lot of maturity to accept edits on the one hand. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with authors who fight me on every single thing, you know, like down to the rules of Chicago Manual of Style. And it's so not helpful. And oftentimes I do think that there's a level of immaturity that goes into that, you know, just so much standing on principle to the point of, you know, to your own detriment. And so I guess I want to say that there's a way to be strong and yet flexible at the same time. Um, and my dear friend, Mark Nepo, has this great analogy about this uh, idea, you know, which has to do with how the wind blows through the trees. 
the tree will not be blown over by the wind, but the wind blowing through the tree's limbs and branches makes it more alive and gives it more movement and vitality. And I think authors, you know, can maybe find their core strength in a similar fashion. Uh, you know, so ask yourself this question, can you be like a tree, you know, that allows the wind to move through your branches and limbs, you know, to be influenced, but not irrevocably changed. So I love that metaphor for having conviction, but also being flexible. Yeah, that's a wonderful image. And I love that analogy to the creative process and receiving feedback. I'm going to keep it in mind the next time I receive feedback, because, you know, we, we can all be, as you said, prickly <laughs> or defensive <Yeah. laughs> um, or resistant to, to edits. It just happens. Uh, so you do have to get yourself in the right mind frame to receive them. Um, so I can't wait to hear Alka's story uh, after this short break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so thrilled that we have with us today Alka Joshi. Alka was born in India and raised in the U.S. since the age of nine. She has a BA from Stanford University and an MFA from California College of the Arts and ran her own advertising and PR agency for 30 years. She's lived in France and Italy and currently lives in California. The Henna Artist is her first novel, and she's currently working on the third book in that trilogy, which we'll be asking about, as well as a screen adaptation of The Henna Artist. Welcome, Alka. Thank you, Brooke. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to start with the seed of this story about The Henna Artist. Um, I'm curious about how you came to write the novel in the first place, because yours really is a story of reinvention, like a, a second or third career. Um, and I know that you surprised yourself even in writing this book. So I was hoping that you could start by talking about the kernel of where the idea to be a novelist started and whether you knew from the get go that this was going to be the kind of story that would resonate as widely as it has. I think that all uh, uh, that's happened about this book and about my author career has taken me by surprise. I had no idea that I would ever become a writer. I was uh, going for my first job in advertising and I thought, oh, I'm going to be an art director because I always was very artistic. And as it happened, my creative directors who were interviewing me said, no, 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 we could hire you as a writer today. You're, you know, you're a good writer based on everything we're seeing in your portfolio. Well, I had never thought of myself as a writer. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to take them up on their offer of 30 days. Uh, and I will, uh, you know, show them after the end of 30 days that I can actually be a great art director. Well, no, as it turned out, I loved writing commercials and I love writing dialogue for radio spots and so on. And I had no idea that I could even do that until I got that job. Well, then fast forward to 2008, and I was taking my mother to India, many, many trips. And we had a condo there, courtesy of my younger brother, uh, that we could stay at, you know, for as long as we wanted. So I'm taking my mom there and my mom is showing me around and she's telling me a lot about her past as a girl, as a young mother, as a young bride. And I am learning so much about my mother that I don't think I'd ever asked her. I don't think I ever knew anything about. So, um, you know, as she is talking, I realize, wow, she has never had any of the decision-making power over her life that she has given me. So, you know, she was told to come back from college at 18 in her first year and uh, 
told by her father, you know, we've found this wonderful man for you to marry. He's an engineer. Uh, he's going to be one of the new builders of the new India. And uh, my mom was married within two months after that. And then she had three kids within four years. And then because my father was constantly being put on a new dam, a new building, a new project, you know, in all these different places, she was always moving house. And I thought, wow, you know, all those years that she has been raising us, she never had the opportunity to, you know, to to say, well, no, I don't want to do this. Or, yes, I want to do that. Or I just want to have two children. I don't want to have three. And I thought, but with me, she always has said to me, you make your own decisions about everything, about your career, about marriage, about the partner you choose in your life, and whether or not you want to have children. Those are all going to be up to you. And I just thought how remarkable it was that having been raised so conventionally, she could raise me so unconventionally. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, this is an amazing woman. And I thought, what if I could give her the kind of life that I think she would have liked to live? And that would be the character of Lakshmi. So that's how I invented Lakshmi. I thought, you know, uh, I need a woman who leaves her marriage and keeps herself child-free so her options are open about what to do afterwards. And then she reinvents herself as uh, a successful businesswoman in a whole other city. People know very little about her past, but she uses all of her skills and her wherewithal, everything about herself uh, that she can muster and creates this amazing life for herself. And so that's what I presented to my mother. I said, mom, I have created this character and I'm writing this book about you. <laughs> <laughs> that is so interesting, Alka, because so often uh, fiction writers try to hide that, you know, when they're writing about some, especially somebody close to them. And I'm very interested in this connection between Lakshmi, the primary protagonist of your book and your mother, uh, because Lakshmi is such a compelling character, as you, as you told us, you know, she's independent and knowledgeable and progressive and also very self-disciplined. And I saw on your site, this incredible photo of your mom that you have there. And I, of course, noticed her striking blue eyes and you have striking blue eyes and Lakshmi has blue eyes. And this was a defining characteristic of that lineage in your book. So I just wondered if you could even say more about how unique your mother you know, might have been for an Indian woman in her era. I think that my mom always had this streak of independence, even though she wasn't allowed to externally uh, live it. So I'll give you a couple of examples. <laughs> when I was four years old, uh, we were all sitting around the dining room table. My grandmother was visiting and my mother saw that she put more food on my brother's plates than on mine. And she questioned my grandmother and said, what are you doing? And the grandmother said, uh, you know, oh, boys need more. And my mother looked at her and said, no, not in my house. Don't do that in my house. My girl gets just as much as my boys. Mm -hmm. And so she started very early, I think, with these tiny little rebellions. Another rebellion of hers was that it, when I was 16, we went to India. And I, just, I was with my parents alone. My two brothers were not with us. And my father was talking to a friend of his, and I overheard the friend say, oh, have you brought your daughter to arrange a marriage for her? And I looked at my mom in panic, and I said, mom, is that true? And my mom said to me, no, 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 that is not happening to you. We are never going to choose your partner. You will do that. 
Um, and there were all of these other tiny little things that she did. Like when my, uh, <laughs> when my older brother was starting to smoke pot, uh, she knew he was smoking pot and she knew that a lot of kids in school were smoking pot. This is the 1970s, you know, in America. And so uh, she finally said to my brother, why don't you bring some pot home and let me try it and just see what the big deal is about? You know, I just want to know why do all of you kids <laughs> want to smoke pot? And I just thought, you know, what an unusual woman she was. And then at 18, you know, when I was finally ready to sleep with uh, a guy, uh, she took me to the doctor right away and got me some birth control pills. And she said, honey, just make sure that you don't get pregnant. And also, please do not marry the first guy you sleep with, because that may not be the guy that you want to be with for the rest of your life. So I think that in these small rebellions, my mother was actually trying to live a life that she wished she could have lived through me, really. I think a lot of her rebellions uh, that had to do with me were really her saying, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that. It is really fascinating. Um, I, I, I think I would have loved your mom. I, I wanted to ask about the the blue eye narrative, though, just because that photo, oh my gosh, I hope that all our listeners go and look at that photo of your mother, which is so striking. But the blue eyes do carry through all the way to the book. So was that just a nod to her? And I was curious how unusual it is, like to the point that people comment on it a lot when you were growing up. And is that why it got into the henna artist in the way that it did? Yes. In northern India, you'll find more blue or green-eyed people uh, than in the south of India, where a lot of the um, uh, colonizers did not go. They didn't go into the middle of India or uh, so much around the, uh, you know, uh, some of the areas where you'll find darker skin, darker-eyed people. Mm. And so I have been asked my whole life, and my mother was too, you know, are you something else? Are you also a British person? Are you, do you have some other kind of mixture in you? And I remember even my mother, when we would go to India, a lot of people would speak Hindi around her and ask my dad, oh, did you marry an American woman? And my mother would be standing right there saying, I know, I can understand what you're saying, you know. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think it was always uh, a point of question and, you know, how did we get these light colored eyes? I know that she told me her grandfather had bright, bright, bright blue eyes. Hmm. And on my father's side, there was an uncle who had blue eyes. So I don't know if uh, the fact that we are also Caucasian, you know, we come from all, everybody comes from the Caucasus Mountains, basically. So we are also Caucasian. So I don't know if we were all, always born with these eyes or if we had some kind of mixture from all of the traders that used to come across the north uh, and all of the colonizers, you know, who also settled in the north. I don't know exactly what happened, but yes, we ended up with these kind of striking eyes. Yeah, they are striking. Well, thanks for indulging me that I, I was curious as I was reading and listening to the book as well. So, um, and I want to ask you a question about conviction. You know, I met you recently in Santa Fe and we sat on a publishing panel together. And so I heard about your story, uh, this path to publication that you had. And really what I came away with was how relentless you were, you know, in your follow-up with your agent, you were persistent, even insistent. Uh, and you also have this incredibly charming personality. So maybe you can get away with that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> better than others. Uh, but I, I wondered if you could tell me about that quality in you that led you to persist and insist. And, you know, for our listeners, 
like, how did you go about doing that even when you were being ignored by your agent in some cases? I think that I learned so much persistence when I started to work in the corporate sphere. When I was in the corporate sphere, it was the 1980s, and I really thought that we women had arrived. I thought that I would be treated with open arms. I thought that all the opportunities would be open to me. And lo and behold, I find out that no, sexism was still alive and rampant. And uh, so then I thought, okay, how do I get noticed in this environment where a lot of the people around me are men and boys, and uh, they are a part of some inner circle that I'm not invited to. And I thought, well, I just have to keep saying, here I am, and this is what I'm doing, and I'd really like you to notice me. And when that failed, uh, you know, it worked to a certain extent because clients always responded to me, even though my um, male superiors didn't always respond. But clients said, hey, I like that girl, you know, let me have her <laughs> for my uh, account. And I want her to do all of my advertising. Um, but uh, then finally, I thought to myself, okay, I can only go so far in this environment. And what I need to do is to figure out how to do this work, this agency work, the marketing, the advertising uh, on my own. So I figured out how much I was going to need. Uh, I figured out how much money I had to survive if I didn't make it on my own. I started my agency. And for the first two months, all I did was pitch. I called everybody I knew and said, will you please allow me to pitch to your company? I think that I can provide services that they're currently buying from maybe a larger agency, but they don't need a larger agency. They don't need that overhead. And uh, I got lots of people saying, okay, you know, come on in, make a pitch. And then within two months, I had more work than I could handle for the whole year. So then I started hiring freelancers. And I thought, you know what? Women don't get the opportunities that men do. So I'm going to hire women. So I just started hiring women to do all the work that I couldn't handle. And uh, that really turned out to be a lesson in both persistence and also realizing that if I didn't get a call back the first time, I could just call back again very politely. I could call back a third time very politely and just say, you know, I know you're busy, but would you please allow me to come and just show you what I can do? I would love to have a conversation with you, even if it's just over the phone for 15 minutes. And I was really surprised at how well people reacted to that. Um, so, you know, I think in my business for 30 years, I was always persistent, which is what helped me be persistent when I finally did start writing and my agent said, no, you're not ready. No, you're not ready. No, you're, and I was, I'd be like, you know, I'm going to show her. I'm sure I'm going to show her I love that. <laughs> one of these days. I will be ready. <laughs> Alka, that's so interesting that she said, no, you're not ready. And yet you had her as an agent. And I'm thinking back, <laughs> I'm thinking back to the beginning of our conversation when you were saying that you didn't see yourself necessarily as a writer when you first started working in the corporate world. So I'm wondering if you can, can tie your path as a writer together, especially because you went to an MFA program and, and published a novel, you know, relatively later in your life compared to a lot of people. Um, so I'm curious just how even that MFA experience contributed to your confidence or when, when you were ready as a writer and how that came about. I think that all throughout my classes, when I was workshopping things that I had written, I had instructors who were so complimentary. And of course, when we workshop, 
in an environment like that where there's 20 people in class or 15 people in class and they are all looking at your work and you're looking at their work, you're also getting feedback from all these other people. And so if so many people are saying, hey, you know what, this is an interesting perspective in a story that I have never heard before, then that gives you a lot of confidence to keep going. It's not a story that they have heard. That's another thing that I you know, kept, uh, kept hearing. Um, the environment and the setting that you're talking about is something that I don't know anything about. So I'm curious to know more. And when you hear those kinds of feedback in an MFA program or even in a writing course that you're taking, you really want to give them more. You really want to keep working at it. And I think that's what helped me more than anything is just that feedback, the positive feedback. Yeah. And your characters um, are complex. There's also a lot of moral ambiguity. And I did want to ask you about that. I found it very satisfying because you're kind of sitting there and your mind is churning, you know, as these they're making difficult choices and, you know, particularly around some of the women's choices. Could you just say a bit about developing that? I mean, was that something that you had to work on over time? Or did it just come very clearly to you from the beginning that you could write that kind of nuance? I think, Brooke, it has something to do with the fact that I'm over 60 years old and I have lived this life where um, I have gone through loves and losses and I have experience what it's like to be betrayed and to betray other people. None of us is perfect. And I love reading books where characters are not perfect, where they are making choices that are difficult. And some of them seem morally reprehensible, but they are difficult choices just as there are in life. And sometimes we have to make a choice that is uh, morally maybe not uh, something that we would condone. So I think that because I'm this old and because I have a, I have experienced so much of life, I wanted to write characters that felt real. I don't uh, want to write characters who are perfect in any way or make all the right choices because that's not reality. That's not what we're all about. And I want to be able to tell people they're not alone in the uh, kinds of choices that they do have to make in life, that they're not alone in feeling isolation, uh, in feeling uh, betrayal or grief or whatever it is they're going through, restlessness. And, uh, you know, I think that that is what uh, bonding with a book is all about. I think it's when you feel that there are characters in a book that are feeling the same kinds of things you are, and you're very wedded to them because of that. So that's what I wanted to create. Well, Alka, The Henna Artist is now a trilogy, and you've also adapted it for film. So I was curious, was, what, did your publisher want more stories with these characters, or did you just see possibilities and want to write more? And then what, I, I loved uh, actually keeping uh, characters going uh, across uh, different, in different ways. Um, so I'm also curious just about you know, writing the adaptation of a book. You know, I never, never, never thought that I would write this as a trilogy. But after 10 years of having these characters in my head and uh, doing 30 drafts of the book, keeping uh, going, uh, you know, layering one thing after another in the narrative, like I would go and layer um, Moloch's story, then I would layer Radha's story, then I would have backstories of all the other characters that I could layer in. And so as I was doing that, I got to know these characters super, super 
super well. And so as soon as the henna artist went off to the printers, I was like, hmm, I was starting another project and these characters would not leave me alone from the henna artist. And Malik in particular just kept saying, hey, what about me? Remember, like you had all of those pages that got cut out of the final versions of the henna artist. Why don't you write about me? You already know so much. And because he was so insistent, I said, okay, fine. I set everything. <laughs> I set the other project aside and I started listening to him. And that story came so easily. It came really quickly and I could just like start whipping it out. Uh, and what was interesting is that, you know, I had done about 20 pages and my uh, agent said, hey, send me those 20 pages. I sent those to her. She sent them off to the editor. And next thing I know, I'm getting a contract for book number two before book number one is even out on the shelves. Hmm. Wow. So that was also very, um, I think, heartening for me and very encouraging because it showed me that my publisher had a lot of confidence in how book number one was going to do. Um, and also they had a lot of confidence in me as a writer uh, to say, you know what, this girl, she needs her deadlines. She knows how to, <laughs> she knows how to make this happen. And so, uh, you know, if we give her a second book contract, we know she's going to deliver. And I did. She's a real writer. Yeah. <laughs> she's <laughs> <No>. ready. <laughs> You know, um, you know, okay, so this is very interesting that you just uh, said what you did, uh, Grant, because I, I think that in a weird sort of way, these characters were in some library in my head that I must have been keeping for so many years. I'm building and building and building these characters. And then um, when I start writing, these characters just come out of the woodwork. You know, even the minor characters, they come to me fully formed. I know what they look like. I know how old they are. I know whether they have children, they're married. You know, I know all of these things. And I think that that is weird. I don't know <laughs> if there are, I don't know if there's other writers who have libraries in their heads of characters, but I certainly do. That's so cool. Keep it going. Yeah, I love it. And and the hen artist, I mean, is it sold? Like, do we know where we'll be able to watch it someday? Or is that still in the works? So we are in development with Netflix, and I was just in L.A. a couple of weeks ago, and I had a chance to meet with the writer's room. So we have six writers, and we, then we have a showrunner, wow. and uh, the writers are all really sharp and true to his word, my executive producer has done everything that I asked him to do when I sold the option uh, to his team. I said, would you please populate the writer's room with largely female writers and a South Asian writers? Because I think it's so important for our stories as South Asians to be written by South Asians. You know, so often our stories have been written by the colonizers or the invaders or the foreigners. Right. And so he said, okay, you know, I get that. And so he did. He populated the entire writer's room. Now we've got four women out of six, and we've got five South Asians. And that's really wonderful. And then the sixth person is married to a South Asian. <laughs> so that's really uh, wonderful. And I think that we're going to get the story very authentic as a result uh, of this writer's room. So that's where we are. The episodes are being written. As soon as they have a second draft of the episodes, they are going to forward them to me to look at. Now, this does not mean that I get to rewrite them, but I can definitely give them, uh, you know, some notes on them. 
And uh, then they go back to Netflix and Netflix get a, gets a chance to approve or not approve uh, or make changes. And then they will probably commission more episodes. So this is what's called a limited series, which Yay. means, yeah. So which means that there will be, you know, so many series that they commission if it does well on the airwaves, then they uh, commission more. And hopefully there will be a second season and a third season. That's what my executive producers are counting on. Oh, congratulations. Mm, fantastic. Yeah, it's so well-deserved as well. So thank I can't you. wait to see it. And thank you. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, this was so much fun. We will be right back with today's book trend. This week's book trend is about shorter and shorter word counts. Now, I know uh, that we will hear from some listener or a few who will make a case for longer word counts because that has to do with genre fiction. You know, sci-fi and fantasy is often much longer, um, and people will probably let me know that their book uniquely could not be cut to sacrifice any words because it would unravel their entire story. But seriously, Grant, shorter word counts are on trend, and they have been on trend for a while now. Yeah, you know, I've just recently become a little bit aware of this. And I've read that, you know, readers' attention spans uh, are one reason. Uh, but shorter books are also cheaper to produce. And, and publishers have that in mind when they're actually, you know, considering cutting and trying to stay in that sweet spot of around 70 to 80,000 words for most novels and memoirs. Um, you know, I oftentimes get the question of how long should a novel be? And now we have a figure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, there's a range. You know, it, it's just important to keep in mind because uh, that is the sweet spot for most fiction and memoir. And of course, there are exceptions. There are other genres. There are genres that fall outside of this, like children's books, of course. Uh, but even self-help falls within this general word count. And the main thing that I want to convey to writers out there is that this trend is serious business because I'll see query letters come past my desk that will say something like my book is 120 plus thousand words and if you're a debut writer it's likely that an agent or an editor is kind of going to write you off as not really knowing that that is too long. There's a bit of an unspoken code in the industry that writers can tend to write too long too, you know, and that it's a mark of a less sophisticated writer not to be able to whittle down your word count, particularly when you're shopping a book, trying to find an editor and agent. So in this way, I just think it's incredibly important to take yourself seriously while you're out in the world shopping your book so that you know what agents and editors expect. Yeah, I definitely heard some stories from writers um, who've gotten pushback on their word counts uh, or from agents who, who you know, sign writers, uh, you know, they, they try to get ahead of word counts before shopping it to editors. So if you get signed by an agent, they might come back with some, you know, pretty, pretty serious cuts. Um, since I've been immersed in thinking about writing with an aesthetic of brevity for years, I happen to be one of these people who likes this trend. But I also understand the need for books that are big in scope and page count. So I might be one of those readers, um, Brooke, <laughs> who sends you a comment about this. Because I, I, I sometimes think about paintings in a museum. You know, some of them need immensity. You know, they need to take up an entire wall. But of course, that's a that is a risky painting, and it is comes with a lot of cost. Um, but I hope there's still a place 
place for big books and big stories. Um, but I really appreciate you bringing this up, Brooke, because I'd also hate for page count to hinder a good story from finding a home. And and this topic actually made me think uh, that the length of stories has always kind of had odd determinants. Uh, Charles Dickens added a lot of words to his already immense novels because he got paid by the word <laughs> and had to string out serializations. Smart. Yeah. Well, yeah. So we just chalk this trend up to what you ought to know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and putting your best foot forward. And of course, there are exceptions. I mean, that's the other thing. It would be fun to hear from all the people out there who have read the most recent book that is, you know, a thousand pages because they are out there and there will always be exceptions to every rule. But for the debut authors out there, just important to think about um, how agents and editors are thinking about it. Definitely. So a trend and a tip this week. That's right. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. Thanks to everyone for writing your stories, for buying books and contributing to the writing and reading community in general. We thrive on your creativity, your gusto, and your listenership. We're a weekly podcast, but we're taking next week off. Uh, but after that, we'll see you the week after and the week after and the week after that. 52 more weeks. 